Hello, hello. You found us again on Boomerangs. This is Ruth. And this is Mike. Today, we have a number of topics to get to. But first and foremost, I just have to check in with you about that Axios interview with Trump because everybody is disturbed by it. Everybody is saying it's the worst thing that he's ever done. And yet, when you watch it, is it just that it's longer than any interview that we've seen on camera with him shuffling graphs and trying to make sense of the fact that he can't see what he's looking at? I felt like it was worse, but I can't put my finger on why. I don't know. It, what I took from it is that I think he thinks that as long as he's talking, he's in control of the conversation. Okay. So it doesn't matter so much what he says. It just matters that he keeps dominating. And for every one syllable that Jonathan Swan puts out, Trump puts out 500. And he keeps talking and he keeps playing that air accordion all the time through that <laughs> through that interview. And he's saying gibberish, really. Yeah. But I think in his mind, it's a win for him if sound keeps coming out of his mouth. Was there, though, was it possibly because Jonathan Swan contradicted what he said and that hasn't happened in an interview in a long, I mean, Chris Wallace did contradict him a couple right. of times, but not consistently. Jonathan Swan, when he said, well, we have lowest death rates in the world. And Jonathan Swan said, in the world? Mm -hmm. And he would say things like, it's in the manual. It's it's in the book. It's in the manual. And Jonathan Swan said, what, what manual? <laughs> so I was wondering if maybe the fact that there was another voice in there of sanity that made him look worse than the other interviewers that he's had. I mean, Chris Wallace said, basically, I took the whatever the test is called for dementia right, and they right. ask you to identify an elephant or he would say things sort of under his breath that Trump would mow over but there was something about that interviewer that really cut him in a way that we haven't seen before otherwise I don't know what to attribute the emperor has no closeness of that interview to I don't know I mean he did behave like if you catch a kid maybe in a lie they're just gonna dance as fast as they can to try to get out of it not a right. kid just anybody I shouldn't say just a kid but maybe he felt vulnerable because he'd been caught in a statistical lie. And so the only option he had was to keep lying. I think for him, the number of words indicates that he's gaining control again. So as long as he can keep words coming out, he's going to be okay. He's going to survive. I don't know. That's my little thumbnail sketch of the psychology of it. It was it terrifying was, to see someone like that sitting in the White House. It's crazy. It's terrible to think that he has the nuclear codes. Yeah. I mean, I can't even think about that. And it's terrible to think that there's a whole apparatus working to delegitimize the post office so that he can delegitimize the election yeah. and claim that he won and do this for four more years, which will kill us, I'm sure. I believe it will kill our democracy. I thought Swan was a little too timid, didn't you? What I thought was he was as confrontational. I mean, he really walked that line. He was yep. as up in his face as he could be without him walking out. And he said at the end, something like it was a privilege, Trump mm -hmm. said. I mean, without ever realizing how much Swan had on him. That was what was amazing to me, that he didn't understand that he acted the fool. Oh, yeah. And that it was recorded. Right. And he would be seen as a fool. That was what was was the most disturbing thing of all, that he thought he had aced it. Oh, yeah. Well, then I'm kind of on the same page as you. That's what was scary for me, too, was he felt like he did fine. And I just think the reason he felt he did fine is because he, he had more words. <laughs> I know all the I best words. I have the best words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know more words. 
what's so frustrating and makes even the conversation about it seem futile on a certain level is that every time Trump does something that would ruin anyone, we all just go along. Okay, well, that was yesterday. Here, let's let's go again, you know, going back to the Access Hollywood thing, you know, that would have sunk anyone. Absolutely anyone. But because it was expected of him, it wasn't like it was a surprise. There's the persona that you put out before the scandal hits. And if that persona is already of a bad boy, then you could probably weather a lot more scandal than someone who's like a Sunday school teacher. Well, it came out very late. It came out in October and it did seem that it was going to sink him. Mm-hmm. Except that then Comey came out with a Hillary well, that's true. report, yeah. and yeah. the Russians got involved. So I think it did damage him a great deal, but mm-hmm. that he bounced back from it because Hillary was so tainted. Yeah. Oh, but looking back, let's not. Somebody referred to, to uh, 85 days. Oh, mm-hmm. that doesn't seem so bad, does it? It'll just no. feel like 85 years by the it's time just, we October's get there. October's going to be a motherfucker because yeah. Barr's going to do something weird. And I just hope that people on our side are planning their own October surprise and not just playing defense on whatever it is that they expect Trump to put out. Well, we already know that Barr has that other report that's being done report. on, mm-hmm. yes, the Durham report. My understanding is that that is a deep dive into this fantasy that they have that the Obama administration was trying to undermine right. the Trump election. Actually, it's, what do they call it? Not backwards day. It's upside down day. It's opposite day or something. It's opposite day. That's it. Yeah. It's, yeah. And that's what that feels like to me is yeah. they yeah. have nothing except that they can point and say, everybody does it. Mm-hmm. Look, you've done it too. Everybody does it-ism was an ism that Kellyanne Conway had. Oh, Look, right. everybody does it. Obama did it, not to get hung up on that. But so that's one thing that we know they have coming up. I think the post office scandal was not covered. I listened to two Sunday shows today. Neither show addressed the post office scandal that's happening. I see. You read the New York Times pretty much cover to cover. Have they been covering that? They have, but not as robustly as I would like them to. I don't think it was a front page feature. I could be wrong about that. Louis DeJoy is the name of the postmaster general now. Right. Yeah, I don't think it was a cover story or above the fold or anything like that. And he apparently did like a Friday night massacre last Friday and he got rid of all this top brass at the post office to replace right. them with people, you know, who are Trumpies that don't know anything about yes. the service. And there's something like an inspector general of the postmaster general mm-hmm. who's being approached oh. to look into this, oh, well, that's this turmoil that's going on. Yes. Uh, he'll certainly get fired in the next week or so. Imagine. <laughs> yes, <right. laughs> so I feel like the House needs to have a commission on this. They need to really go full bore into what's going on at the post office. I think I heard that they subpoenaed DeJoy this week, and he, of course, refused to come in. Oh, so, really? Yeah, that's what I heard on the Glenn Kirshner YouTube channel. I hadn't channel. heard that. Oh, I hadn't heard that. So well, Kirshner is saying that Congress needs to enforce their subpoenas with the time. consequences. Jail time. Yeah. Yes, they do. I don't know why. I mean, they should have done that in the Mueller times right. and in the impeachment times yeah. and in the Don McGahn times. Yeah. But maybe they need the courts to back them up, and maybe they didn't have that. I don't know how that or works. maybe. Oh, anyway. Trump watch. Okay, cleansing <laughs> breath, cleansing breath. In with anger, out with love. Ah, there we go. I think now it's out with anger, in with love. Out with anger, in with love.
Did you have a topic that we could go to now that we're not? Uh, not uh, watch? No, I thought you said we had a lot of topics. I have one that I wanted to talk about because I've been hearing about this show on Netflix for a month. Okay. And it's gone very viral. It's called Indian Matchmaker. Oh, yeah. Have you heard of it or seen it? I, I think I've seen it, the little square for it, it on Netflix. It is worth a binge watch, at least. Hmm. There's a matchmaker who is an Indian woman. Now, one thing that I'm learning is how the different localities of India factor into whether someone is a good match or not. You could really have everything right on paper paper, but be from the wrong province, and mm -hmm. that would discount you altogether. Well, so, we do that here, but we base it on your area code. <laughs> I am a total pariah because I'm in the 818. You are so in the 818. That's right. I, I have no future in this town. <laughs> I hope we don't live in that world. But in India, they live in that world. Yeah. There's a whole huge caste system. You know, when people mention mm -hmm. what kind of woman they want, they want fair skin. What kind right. of man do they want? Fair skin. And the criteria, what's interesting is you think somebody goes to a matchmaker because they want not love so much, but they want someone who's going to be their companion, who has mm -hmm. similar ideals, mm -hmm. maybe a similar family background. And it used to be that matchmaking was a marriage of two families. The individuals involved didn't really matter as much. Whether they were keen on each other or not was really right. less of the point. But in this series, people are going with the idea that they will fall in love with their matches. And, and this woman really seems like the whole job is a headache. Because what? is a headache. Because this one likes something about the match that she's found, but there's one line item that doesn't work. So he's a, a no-go. He's a loser. It's just very, very interesting. I think you would enjoy watching it because it makes looking for for an ideal mate so impossible. <laughs> And it makes me feel somehow comforted by that. <laughs> that if people who are young and gorgeous have a hard time finding a mate, right. well, then no wonder. No wonder yeah. I'm having a hard time. Yeah. Oh, I might give it a try. It is funny. Uh, I mean, I think there must be something in our DNA as human animals that leans us in the direction of making these distinctions of quality of other human beings based on arbitrary traits. Yes. There is a, a huge book that just came out. It's getting all kinds of accolades. And it's by Isabel Wilkerson, and I'm going to get the name of her previous book wrong. I believe it is called The Warmth of Another Sun, about the Black Migration North. But the current book is called Cast, C-A-S-T-E, colon, The Origins of Our Discontents. And it's about the caste system. She uses caste as a substitute for race, but is another way of looking at race and how we value people and how we devalue people. Mm -hmm. And I've just been hearing her being interviewed and I'm so interested in this idea that someone right. has taken, I mean, she said, if it's bone, it's caste. If it's skin, it's race. And I'm not exactly sure what that means, which is why I'm interested to read the book and find out. Yeah, Go going back to India, did they have an earlier, system that was more cut and dried about caste? Like your, your family belonged to a certain caste and, and there yes. was a hierarchy. It seems like maybe in the earlier times it was less negotiable. You either were or weren't in this class, yes. even with certain physical characteristics. I think that the Brahmin class was one of the upper castes. It sounds like and a I, high one. And then the lower caste were the untouchables. But there were maybe levels in between there. Yes, too. many, many levels. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what those were. 
In a way, they're just being overt about exactly. something that we do with each other, even if we don't know we're doing it. And we, there was we a lot classify of, each other. There was blowback against this program because people who were South Asian or Indian didn't like right. the fact that it was being exposed in this oh. way and didn't want this to be something that was known outside of their culture. So they didn't mind but, having them, but they just didn't want it published. Exactly. Strange. But then there was another group that said, no, let's have it out in the open. Let's right. show people how we do this. And maybe maybe we're right to do it. Maybe we're wrong to do it. But if we're not yeah. right to do it, let's look at that. Another thing I find interesting about ranking, human ranking systems, is that when you're in one of the less desirable groups, the, you sometimes turn against your own. In other words, there's another stratification within the cast out group. Yes. So say for African Americans, there would be a system where they do a skin tone That is a judgment. Huge, or in, a the gay, in the gay culture, you know, there's, there's a lot of homophobia within the gay culture. I've experienced it myself, and I've probably been a perpetrator of it in certain cases myself. And I guess it's just part of the territory that when you're in an aggrieved group, you take out some of that pain by judging people in your own group. Can you expound on that, how that works in the gay? I mean, I'm loath to go toward how it is in the Black community because I don't really know how that works. I have heard people who are speaking about it, mm -hmm. talk about it, but I don't feel comfortable discussing it because I don't really know what that's about. Well, um, like Tirso, my ex that was Cuban, he would always tell me that the Cubans among Hispanic cultures of the Western Hemisphere thought that they were the top of the line and that there was a snobism. If you were Cuban, you were much better than, say, someone from the Dominican Republic or someone from Mexico. So there you have like a large group who in right. our country are treated as second class, which are Hispanic or Latinx. And yet within that larger culture, there's a lot of ranking going on. And I think in the gay culture, it manifests as how you express yourself as a gay man, for example. You know, if you're very masculine, very butch and have the beard and the mustache and all of that and the flannel shirt and the hiking boots, that's in certain parts of our culture, our gay culture, that's considered superior to say someone who might express himself or themselves with a more feminine outward way. Is that um, right? Oh, definitely. I don't know. They, they don't call it butchism, but they should. <laughs> they should just call it butchism. So how would Also, that... there's racism. It's dicey to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I, I think there has been a history, maybe not conscious racism, but a certain amount of accepted racism within the gay culture. Oh, and, I think... That, and vice versa. I've heard black gay men complain about that. Right. And the other way around, too. I know that for a fact, because of my more intimate interchange with, with a Cuban-American, that there's a lot of homophobia within the Latinx community. Not that there isn't within the white community, but I just find it interesting that it, it makes sense in a way. If you're a group and you're being marginalized, one of the ways maybe that you cope with that is to marginalize others within your group yeah. so that at least you can feel superior to somebody. Well, that was not to backtrack too much. I'm just going to make a, a short sideways interject. That was what people felt about how Trump got elected, that Obama had made being a minority not the bottom of the pile. Right. So that people who were Southern and white always had somebody beneath them. Yeah. And once Obama became president and there was affirmative action and Sonia Sotomayor went to the Supreme Court and Eric right. Holder was the attorney general, suddenly you couldn't just look down on all black people. So and you had, you had no place to focus that rage anymore. That's well, right. You had it if you voted for Trump. You had a place to focus it because right, he was right. the cheerleader for that. I'm just confirming your... Right. People get attached to their sense of the pecking order. Yes. They don't like that order messed around with. And that's why it's very hard for cis white men 
of which you're one of those, <laughs> to give up their white privilege. Privilege. Because yeah. if you're in free fall and there's no one designated to be beneath you, then how do you maintain your superiority? How does one maintain one's view of one as superior? I think that all that needs to be examined, and I think it will be the hardest part of bringing equality right. to our culture. Have you been wandering around television land at all? Have you landed on yes, any? Yes, a little bit, but I'm reverting to old things that I'm loving. One is a series that I think is at least a couple years old. Did you watch one on Netflix called Wormwood? No, I've never even heard of it. Wormwood is about the CIA experiments in the 50s with LSD and truth oh. serum and mind control. Oh, wait a minute. This is the son? Yes, of this is the son of a man who I haven't gotten to the end of the series yet, but but it, they're heading in the direction of this guy was murdered by the CIA. Oh, really? Yeah, because he knew too much. And he was unpredictable because they had fed him LSD and he'd had very bad reaction to it. And I can't give all the information yet because I'm only halfway in, maybe a little more than half. But it's a fascinating series on how the government kills people in the name of fighting communism, terrorism, whatever the perceived enemy du jour might be. But the way it's told is so good. I tried to watch it a while back and I didn't stay with it because the first episode is really not all that gripping. Because it's by Earl Morris, isn't it? Isn't he the director? It sounds familiar. It's very confusing. It was my memory was the- It takes a while to get used to the format, but once you kind of settle into it, it's really fun. So it's dramatized. They dramatize the past scenes and they do it with really, really good actors. I mean, it's not just any not hard copy. It's serious, real actors. I don't remember all the names, but Bob Balaban is in it. Really? And yeah. And he's really good. He's really understated. I didn't even know until I saw his name in the credits. Huh. Also, when they're doing the flashbacks, it's always these men in overcoats and hats, you know, these 1950s G-men. And I swear to God, I think the art director was using Edward Hopper. Is he the one that had that painting Nighthawks. of the diner at night with the fluorescent lights? Yeah. Yeah. Hopper caught that Isolation. atmosphere of 1950s America. And so the scenes, they look like that. I will say if anyone wants to watch. It, don't watch it in a sunny room because there's a lot of darkness in all of the scenes they do. Oh, so you need it's to wiped a, out. You need to be in a pretty dark room. But then that's juxtaposed with the son who's still around who questioned all of this and went through this 10 or 12 or 15 year process to try to get to the bottom of what really happened to his dad because all they told him was your dad jumped or fell out oh, of wow. a 13th story window at this hotel in New York City. And oh so each episode he gets a little closer to finding out what the truth might have been. I don't know. It's good. It's good on a storytelling level, the way they structure it between the present day interviews with the guy and the dramatizations of the old scenes. Is just yeah, Earl Morris is a really wonderful director. He's yeah. a documentary director. He did something called The Thin Blue Line. Did we see it together? The one about Robert McNamara? It was called... A had one of those it's ringing titles. a very faint bell it's ringing a very faint bell it had war in the title i'll have to look it up but he's a, a really wonderful filmmaker very creative it, i mean not just thing. straightforward thing i mean the story itself is interesting but, oh but that's why episode one doesn't really grab you because episode one is very heavy on interviewing the present day son of this fellow who oh is that what it was is murdered by the cia and it's a little dry you know he's talking and talking but, but if you stick with it past episode one, the scenes become more and more rich and it becomes a, a real life who 
done it. I'm it's right up my alley because I love that, that crime stuff. I know. I know you do. I really you do. Were... And speaking of that, my other new thing, because I ran out of things I liked, I've gone back to Breaking Bad and I just, I just love it. I just love it. <laughs> I love the theme of the guy who's kind of an everyman. All he wants to do is try to raise some money so that when he dies from lung cancer, his family will have a nest egg. And then within one episode, he's in so much deep shit. You know? Yeah. You know, it's funny. You're making me want to start watching it again, which I vowed I wouldn't ever do because it gets so dark. It does. Well, so far, so good. I'll, I'll stay with it as long as, I, as long as it still speaks to me. I, I did my homework on Indian Matchmaker, and just one last word on that is it's half-hour segments and very bingeable. I mean, if you're oh, looking nice. for a binge-worthy thing. I'll give it a look, for very, sure. Very, very bingeable. It was recommended by Catherine, and okay. she didn't steer me wrong. Okay. Yeah, so I guess that that's it for us, boomers. All right. We're going to shuffle off into that great podcast sky in the night. Thanks for joining us, and we will... Speak to you again in a week. Go on. Bye bye. Stay safe. Ah.